Good morning, Arlington Baptists. Glad to be back with you this morning. If you got a Bible, why don't you turn to Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58. Now I want you to picture a pilot who walks into a cockpit of an airplane like Delta or American Airlines. He's from another airline, but as was typical before 9-11, there was a jump seat available within the cockpit as a courtesy to guest pilots. So, you know, he, he, he wants to take a plane ride to another city. He joins another airline by joining uh, in the sitting on the jump seat as that flight goes from one city to another. Uh, Frank was uh, the guest pilot and he introduced himself as he stepped into the cockpit and then was about to sit down on the jump seat. He introduced himself to the captain and the co-pilot and then took his seat. Now this might not seem all that significant unless you knew that Frank was 19 years old and he was pretending to be a pilot. He was pretending to be a pilot. He was attempting to get a free ride. He'd figured out how to work around the lax system before 9-11 and jump free plane rides across the country until he ended up in prison many years later. Frank was a professional con artist. He did this for many years, a person who tricks others by persuading them to believe something that is not true. Frank pretended to be a pilot in order to get free plane rides. He passed off bogus checks to banks for many years. He took advantage of hotels and condos to live a life of luxury until he got caught in his deception and landed in prison. He's what the Bible would call a hypocrite. He pretends to be something he's not. Now, I don't know if you're like me, I detest when my inbox fills up with all kinds of spam email that I didn't request. I, I, I am fairly vigorous about getting rid of all the things that people send to me that I didn't ask for. And so this morning I saw something that was put in my inbox and I right away figured out how to get rid of it. Well, the exception to this is a, a newsletter that I started getting called Ministry Watch. One day it showed up in my inbox. After a few times of it landing in my inbox, I started reading through it. And, you know, unlike all the other things that I get rid of, I actually kept it. Because it details the really sad stories of hypocrites in churches. It tells story after story of people who are pretending to be Christians, but then as con artists, bilk Christians, act as a fake, take on some religious role, and jip Christians out of their money, out of their livelihood, out of, out of many other things. It's sad and at times heartbreaking to read the kind of hypocrisy that can exist in local churches. Well, we're looking at Isaiah 58 this morning, and we're considering the question, what kind of life pleases God? Uh, and if you're here and you claim to be a Christian, you are religious, and yet just because you're religious doesn't mean you love God. So here's my thesis sentence, my thesis statement for the whole sermon. So if you want the whole thing in two sentences, here it is. We must live for Christ. Genuine faith will be demonstrated in rectifying wrongs, a love for others, and obedience to God's commands. We must live for Christ. Genuine faith will be demonstrated in rectifying wrongs, 
a love for others, and obedience to God's commands. So here's the warning. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't take on the form of religion and yet fail to live justly, lovingly, and obediently like a genuine Christian would. Here's how we're gonna tackle our time together. I'm gonna cover two points, and this is our outline for this morning, if you wanna take, take down the outline if you're taking notes. Number one, don't be a hypocrite. That's gonna be verses one to five. And number two, live a life that's pleasing to God. That's verses six through 14. So number one, don't be a hypocrite at verses one to five. And number two, live a life that's pleasing to God. That's verses six through 14. Now, Isaiah offers for us two examples of a religious life, fasting and Sabbath keeping. And with both examples, we'll see a stark contrast. We'll see a life oriented around our own pleasures or a life built on what God delights in. And that's the contrast we're going to think about this morning. Now, if you're pursuing any kind of religious practice, Bible reading, fasting, keeping the Sabbath, prayer, church attendance, or whatever it is, and yet your heart is cold towards God, you're in trouble. And your life this morning needs an overhaul. It needs to be redeemed because God does not want any of that. He does not want us to pursue Christianity and yet be completely cold towards him. Genuine Christians love Jesus. He's the true center of their life. And the purpose of any religious practice is to know and love Christ. Our religious life is only useful to the extent that it helps us to adore Christ himself. What does Jesus say? Abide in me, for apart from me you can do nothing. So let's begin. Point number one, don't be a hypocrite. That's verses one to five. Let me read that for us. The prophet Isaiah, he says, Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not become, will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? All right, we see in verse 1 Isaiah's declaration against religious hypocrisy. And we're going to think about first verse 1 and 2. Look down there at verse 1 with me. The Lord declares through Isaiah, cry aloud, don't hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet. So immediately he's calling us to attention. There's news that needs to be declared. The phrase like a trumpet refers to an instrument like in their day a ram's horn, which would have been 
which would have created a piercing blast that grabbed everyone's attention in the entire community. All activity would have ceased when that kind of alarm was sounded in the middle of the community. And what's the news that he's trying to grab our attention about? Uh, the Lord is seeking to tell the Israelites and call their attention to their own sins. Look there, he says, declare to my people their transgressions, to the house of Jacob their sins. Now, how did the Israelites sin? Look at verse 2. And you see that key word, that word yet, at the beginning, verse 2. Here's the contrast that's offered. They seek God out. They seem eager to know his ways. And then look at the end of verse 2. They ask God for just decisions. They seem eager to draw near to God. So this is the first indication of hypocrisy. They seek to delight in God, they seek to draw near to God, and yet there is sin. What's the sin problem? Notice the words as if. You see them, you see the words twice there. As if. As if they did righteousness. Now you can think of righteousness simply as a godly life that loves others and does good to others. And then you see the second as if there in the text as if they did not forsake the judgment of their God. You can say this another way. You can say, as if they lived in fear of the judgment of God. What's God saying here? On the one hand, the Israelites say they want to know God, they want to follow his ways, and yet on the other hand, they don't love others. They don't live in fear of the judgment of God. They're religious hypocrites. They say they love God, but they don't show it in how they live. This is the sin that God wanted Isaiah to sound the alarm about and to shout aloud. Now, in the Bible, the starkest example of religious hypocrite are the Pharisees. We just read about this in Mark chapter 7 in the, in, in the service. The Pharisees maintain a public appearance of religion, and yet, we all know the example of the Pharisees, what their, what their life is like. Jesus himself said that uh, on the inside, their hearts were corrupt. They were like whitewashed tombs. That's Matthew chapter 28. Now, with, just for a moment, turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Uh, sorry, Luke chapter 18. Let's just flip over to Luke chapter 18. In Luke 18, you'll see a, a parable of Jesus where he talks about uh, the Pharisee and the tax, tax collector. What, what we see is a Pharisee who trusted in himself such that he felt confident in his own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. In his prayer, he pridefully declared all of the religious things he did. Look there at verse 12. He fasted twice a week, tithed all that he gets. Uh, he took up religious practices, the form of religion, like fasting and tithing. He even prayed to God. But in talking with God, he bragged about the religious things he did. He's telling God how good of a religious person he was. He's confident of his own standing before God, his own righteousness before God. And the point of the parable is there in verse 14. Look there, 14. Who is truly justified before God? It's not the Pharisee 
who exalts himself, but the tax collector who begs for God's mercy because the tax collector knows what? He knows he's a sinner. Are you a religious hypocrite? Do you show up at this church looking religious, saying the right things, even doing the right things, but your heart is cold towards God? There are a lot of religious con artists walking around churches today, pretending to be Christians, saying they look like a Christian, acting like a Christian, saying the right religious things, and yet they are walking around pretending to be a Christian and they're a hypocrite. Is that you? Well, you're, if, if you're good at looking like a Christian on Sundays, and yet you need to heed the warning from Isaiah 29, 13, your heart is far from God. Do you read the Bible, and yet it amounts to nothing more than head knowledge for you? Do you attend church regularly, and yet you come out of mere obligation, not out of any kind of love for God or for his people? Do you pray in public settings, like maybe your small group, and yet... Your lack of private prayer shows you don't really believe that prayer works, that you really won't depend on prayer in your own life. You know, if this describes you today, you need to come to terms with your own hypocrisy. The good news is that Jesus came to die for hypocrites. We're, we're, we're all hypocrites in one sense or another, because at the moment when we choose to sin, we're turning our back on God and saying, you know what? Sin is better than you, God. So the, sin, the promises of sin is better than what you have to offer. And so in that moment, we stand as a hypocrite because we choose sin over the one God who has promised us his son to die for us. And so the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to die for hypocrites. He came to die for people who, who will repent, turn from their sin, and turn to Christ and say, I need you more than I can trust myself. I need you more than I can believe in myself. Because what's the world going to tell you? Believe in yourself. You know, trust in yourself. Do whatever you want. Live the life however you want. What's Christianity going to tell you? You can only have a solid foundation through Christ. And so if you feel convicted at all that you might be acting a fake religious life, there's good news waiting. There's really good news waiting. Because Christ came to die for all those who will repent and trust in him. And that's the news that we came to hear today about. So, you know, if, 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 if this applies to you, talk to me at the door at the end of the service. Talk to any of the elders here today. Let them know that you've been faking it and that you don't want to do that anymore. That, that you want to live a genuine Christian life. And that, 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 the, that begins today by starting to ask for help. So the headline of this text is verses 1 and 2. It's God declaring the Israelites are hypocrites. These hypocritical Israelites, in turn, ask a question of God, and that's in verse 3. This question is important because the rest of the chapter, verses 4 through 14, is God answering the Israelites' question in verse 3. Now, just, we, just pause for a moment and just think, what's the point of fasting? Because he's going to take the next few verses and explain religious fasting. In fasting, we're denying ourselves food for the sake of, as one scholar put it, 
quote, medit meditating on the seriousness of our sin and the greatness of God in making a way of atonement for us, end quote. Now look there at verse 3. You notice the quotation marks around verse 3. The we here are the Israelites, the you is God, and this is a quote then from the Israelites. The Israelites are wondering why their fasting and their supposed humility has not gotten God's attention. They're, they're claiming if we fast, if we humble ourselves, then you, God, should notice what we're doing. It's a quid pro quo. You know what that is? You know, I use that phrase so often, I had to look it up in Webster to make sure I knew how to define it for you. In Latin, it's expect something for something. Uh, if you do a right religious thing, say right religious things, if you meet religious ob obligations, then you, you, you're saying, God, you should take notice. That's what they're saying to God. You know, do, do, do we actually ask similar questions as the Israelites? I, th I think we do. Sometimes we often do. That's because some of us expect things of God when we act certain ways. You know, he's the divine genie in the sky. He's the heavenly Santa Claus. So, you know, we have our own version of a quid pro quo. Expect something for something. God, if I read my Bible, I try to read my Bible, so why aren't I growing like I should? Or God, I attend church, so why aren't I more connected? Or, or God, uh, I prayed, so why isn't my life getting better? Or God, I fasted, so why isn't the decision clear? Or God, I opened up to our pastor, so why isn't my marriage getting better? Or, or God, I took my kids to church, sent them to the best Christian school, so why didn't you save them? God, look at what I've done. Uh, look, aren't you paying attention to what I'm doing? God, why do I feel so alone down here? I'm doing all the right religious things. So why aren't you paying me back? Do any of these questions sound familiar to you? Do you ever ask questions like these of God, asking him, why does he seem to give something in return? Well, look there at second half of verse 3. Look there at second half verse 3. We see, we get to see what kind of fasting the Israelites are undertaking. In the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all your workers. The real motive behind the Israelites' fasting is uncovered here. They fast in order to seek their own desires and their own pleasures. This is not a fast for God. It's ultimately for themselves and what they want to get out of it. It's religious self-interest. Here again, we see the religious hypocrisy. The form of religion is fasting, and yet the heart attitude is self-centered. When any of us live like a religious hypocrite we, with a corrupt heart, we're not surprised by the outcomes, are we? Our behavior displays the corruptness of our hearts. In this text, there are three outcomes that the, of the Israelites' hypocritical life. What we'll see is oppression, fighting, and violence. Look there, verse 3, behold. You know, and anytime you see behold in the Bible, it's, it's the, the, the author saying, slow down, check this out. So he's saying, behold, look at what they were doing. The Israelites oppress all their workers. 
whether this is household servants or slaves or maybe oppressing people in the community, whatever it is, we're not told the details. The point is the Israelites, with their corrupt hearts, it leads them to oppression of others. And then verse 4, look there, behold. So again, the author is saying, check this out. While they fast, they quarrel and get into fights. They even hit people with their fists. The Israelites are fasting, so they're acting religious, and abundantly sinning at the same time. That's the startling thing here. In verse 4, the second half there, you see the warning that's offered. Fasting like yours. And so this is God saying, like yours, he's talking about the self-centered, self-interested fasting. Fasting like yours will not make your voice to be heard on high. If you're religious and your religious life is self-centered, if it's revolving around self-interest, if it's all about you, God will not hear you when you cry out to him. That's a warning. And that's a warning we all need to heed. It should, it should send chills down your spine. The God of the universe has said, I'm done with listening to you. I won't stoop so low so as to hear your selfishness. Now look at verse 5. Is such a fast that I choose? We can reword it to say, is this what you call a fast? Now, I don't know if you're like a number of my friends who like to use sarcasm. This is not the sarcasm that we tend to use, our kind of witty banter with each other. This is holy sarcasm. This is God using holy sarcasm. Because what he's doing here, he's saying, really? You know, really? <laughs> is this the kind of religion you think that pleases me? Will you call this a legitimate fast? A fast where you oppress people? Where you get into fights? Where you do all this out of your own self-interest? So what about you? You know, in this past week, have you had a fight that you regret? Are you cheating? Are you telling blunt lies or even white lies? Are you maybe using foul language by cursing people? Are you more angry than you want? Are you being more impatient more times than you want? What is it about your life? What kind of sin are you, are, are you actually giving into and letting overrun your life? And God has to say to you, really? Is this how you're going to live your faith? Are you going to let sin rule your life rather than giving your life to me? Is this the kind of religious life that you think pleases me? Well, be encouraged. If you, if you felt even a tinge of conviction as I started to list those sins, there's good news for you. Because we don't live under condemnation. We live under the hope that Christ can actually help you fight all of those sins. You don't have to stay stuck in any of them. If you choose to repent of those sins, Christ can help you to no longer be dominated by those sins, but live a life by starting to run back to him and say, I need help. 
Look at verse 5. Self-imposed humility is not real humility. The bowing down like a reed, laying in sackcloth and ashes, is another descriptor of the Israelites' attempts at self-abasement, behaving in a way that makes one lower and less deserving of respect. And at the end of verse 5, God offers another rhetorical question. Do you really think a day of fasting like this is acceptable to me? And you know what the answer to that rhetorical question is? It's no. It's no. This is not what's acceptable to me. Now, do you ever have, do you ever have that day when you do something that's unhelpful? And maybe it's a family member or a spouse or a parent or a co-worker looks at you and goes, Really? Are you going to do that again? Come on now, really? <laughs> they, they take on that sarcastic tone. You know that they're slightly frustrated with you. You know their disposition towards you in that moment. Well, you know, that, that sarcastic tone, that's, that's even a tinge of the holy sarcasm that God has towards us when we act like this and live in our sin and actually don't live faithful and genuine Christian lives. Now, kids, you've been really patient in listening to me go on and on. I really appreciate your patience as we talk about this together today. Here's what I want you to ask your parents later today. I want you to ask them over lunch, what is a hypocrite? So that's the first thing you're going to ask them. Ask them, what is a hypocrite? And get them to explain that to you. And the second thing, you're going to put them on the spot at lunch. You're going to ask them, how do they know that they're a genuine Christian? Ask them that. Let's see what they say. And the next year when I'm back, tell, them what they, tell me what they said. <laughs> because what I want them to do and I want you to hear about is what genuine Christianity looks like. I want you to know the difference between a fake and something that's real. And if you're not a follower of Christ, thank you for coming. I love that you're here today with us, with God's people. Now, interestingly, so far, most of the sermon's not for you. Because what we're talking about are people who pretend to be religious, and yet they're not really living a religious life. For you, many of you who have come here today, whether a friend brought you along or you chose to come, you, you may not even know what sin is. And so hearing us talk about sin might be a foreign concept to you. Well, sin is our rebellion against God. And for you here today, if you don't know Christ, the thing that you need to do is come to terms with your sin because if you come to terms with your sin, you'll come to know your need for God. You're, you'll come to know your need for Christ. And so if you've got a question about that, about what sin is and how to come to know Christ, we would love to talk to you here today. In fact, you know, after the service, you can almost turn to anyone around you and say, tell me about sin and my need for Christ. And they'd be ha happy to explain that to you. Well, so if this is the unacceptable Self-interested fast, what does a genuine God-honoring fast look like? Well, that brings us to point number two. Living a life that's pleasing to God. That's verses 6 through 14. Let me read that for us. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness and to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is, not, is it not to share your bread with the hungry? and to bring the homeless poor into your home when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn 
and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desires in the scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a water garden, like a spring of water, whose water does not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the fountains of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasures on my holy day, and call this Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going on your going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take your delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So what we'll see is faith demonstrated through justice, love and obedience is what pleases God. Look at verse six. We start out with another rhetorical question. Is not this the fast that I choose? In other words, here's the kind of fast that I want. That's what God's saying. After detailing the Israelites by describing their self-interested in fast in verses four and five, God is gonna tell us now what the genuine religious life looks like. So the rest of the chapter, what I want you to notice in terms of the structure, it's broken down in if-then statements. And if you notice the structure of the if-then statements, it actually helps the rest of the text fall into place fairly quickly. So I'm going to break up point number two into two subpoints to just help us understand the rest of those verses. So this is subpoint number one under point number two. Subpoint number one under point number two. Subpoint number one, this is what pleases God. Justice and loving your neighbor. Verses 6 through 12. This is what pleases God. Justice, as in freeing the oppressed, and loving your neighbor. That's verses 6 through 12. Now here, verses 6 through 9 is structured as, as I just said, an if-then statement. The if in verses 6 through 7 is implied. God says, is not this the fast that I choose? You know it's implied because... Uh, you know, the if is implied because if you look down there, you see in verse 8 to 9, you see more explicitly the, the word then. And then in 9 through 12, you'll see a second set of if-then statements. These if-then statements describe the God-honoring life that the Lord desires to see in his children. So starting verse 6 and 9, we deal with the freeing of the oppressed that we heard about in verse 3. The yoke there in verse 6 is probably the yoke of oppression. You know, notice all the verbs in verse 6 deal with liberation. Loose the bonds, undo the straps, go free, break every yoke. Or verse 9, take away. Now, verse 9 also describes how we might 
be sinfully contributing to the oppression. Stop pointing the finger, that is, stop mocking and showing contempt for others. Stop speaking wickedness. What could fighting oppression look like in your life? Well, you know, maybe you know a wife who is in a horrible marriage. Maybe she's even in a marriage where she's experiencing some kind of violence, like domestic violence. If that's the case, helping that wife in that difficult situation is something that's hard to know what to do, something you need to think real carefully about, but that's an opportunity to help someone who's experiencing real oppression in a marriage with a horrible husband. Or, you know, consider for many of you uh, an office setting. Let's, let's picture a boss who treats everyone under him or her horribly. Let, let's say that boss curses employees out, you know, d does things like says inappropriate comments to people, and you're in a position in that office because your role in that office to say something. If you don't say anything, you're letting that boss's despicable behavior continue when in fact you can fight the oppression going on in your office by speaking up. And God would want you to do that. When you see oppression in real life, say something, do something about it, and do that not because it's just the right thing to do, but do that because you're a Christian and on behalf of God, just like God says, fight oppression, so also you should do that in your own settings. Verse 7 and 10 deal with then loving your neighbor. If we genuinely love Christ, then our life will demonstrate God's love in how we live for others. How much does God's love show in the way it's displayed in how you live your life? So, you know, the, the, the idea would be if I had a movie camera and I got to watch you throughout the entire week, what would I see? Would I see a life where you're sacrificing yourself consistently for others and your love for Christ is demonstrated in how you live for others? Now, you know, I'm a counseling pastor and I get to hear a lot of times people talk about the life that they lived with when they grew up in their family or the life they live with in their office setting, the life they live with in church. And it's sad how often they talk about Christians and how little they see the love of God demonstrated in them. So what would I see? What would I see if I saw on a movie camera what your life looked like this past week? Is there a consistency in the way that you show love towards others because of your love for Christ? And then you see the then statements in verses 8 and 9, and then the second half of 10, so 10b through 12. And I'm just going to group these statements because there are a lot of them under these, uh, these then statements. So what would God do for you? You see that. The Lord would lead and guide you continually in verse 11. Or the Lord would satisfy your desires in scorched places. That's also verse 11. Or what will become of you? The light of your life will dispel the darkness. That's verse 10. Or your gloom will be like, uh, like a bright noon day. You know, that, that, that phrase there uh, you're, the, that you see there in verse, verse 10 w was befuddling to me all week. Shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday? I was like, what is that? How does gloom be as the new day? Well, even your worst days will be as bright as the midday sun. That's what he's saying. Your gloom won't be that bad at all. And then look at how God will use you. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins. That's verse 12. 
you will repair the broken walls, that's verse 12, you will make the streets in, inhabitable, uh, in, you will make the streets that were inhabitable now habitable. So verse 12, the Israelites will get to participate in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Much of what was destroyed after the exile in Israel now will be repaired and the streets will be taken care of because they'll be restored and much more will probably be done to help out. Now here's the point. If you live a life that's pleasing to God, It'll make a difference in the lives of those around you and in your own life. That's what I want you to hear from all of those then statements that are listed there. If you live a life that's pleasing to God, it will make a difference, both for yourself and, and all those around you. Genuine godliness changes the world around us. It really does. Now, he was known as Nixon's hitman. The late Chuck Colson described himself as valuable to the president because I was willing to be ruthless in getting things done. He was known as ruthless, but also brilliant. Colson was nicknamed the evil genius of the Nixon administration. In March 1974, Colson was indicted for conspiring to cover up the now famous Watergate burglaries. As Colson was facing arrest, a close friend Thomas Phillips gave him a copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and Phillips was a very successful businessman. And he challenged Colson to read that book and to consider Christ. So despite his skepticism, Colson did read Mere Christianity, and then on a Friday morning in a cottage off the coast of Maine, he surrendered his life to Christ in 1973. And guess what the Washington Press did? They were completely skeptical of his conversion in the weeks that came right after. In 1974, then, Colson pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice in the case of Daniel Ellsberg, and he goes to prison in Alabama for seven months. And it's in prison where he served for seven months, he began to notice firsthand the injustices of prisoners and the kind of difficult life they lived and the poor reforms that were offered to them. And it was right there in prison he began to realize what he needed to do with the rest of his life. To begin to actually work at, for the sake of the kingdom of God, reforming prisons and beginning a prison ministry. So a year later, as he got out of prison, started, he started prison fellowship. And hundreds, and now hundreds of chapters, not just in the U.S., but all around the world, work to bring the gospel to prisoners. Genuine godliness can change the world. It really can. Now, I, I don't expect that many of us are former White House official turned prisoner turned full-time ministry person. That's not a good descriptor for many of us in the room today. But for many of us, simply loving the Lord, praying faithfully, and serving others, living a genuine Christian life is what God is asking of us. And that genuine godliness can change the world. So be encouraged, friends. You know, if you're desiring to live faithfully today, God can do a lot with your life. And you might not think, well, I haven't started a ministry that's changed prisons all over the world. Well, you don't need to. That's not the point of that illustration. The point is to say, like, if you're living faithfully, God will do something with it. Genuine godliness changes the world. 
Look at verse 13 and 14. God shifts the conversation to the Israelites' second religious practice, which is Sabbath keeping. So sub-point number two. So sub-point number two, under point number two, this is what pleases God, that we obey and delight in the Lord's commands. That's verses 13 and 14. Sub-point number two, under point number two, this is what pleases God, that we obey and delight in the Lord's commands. Now you'll notice again the if-then structure in these verses. If in verse 13, then in verse 14. The verses are stated in a way that speak positively what the Israelites should do in honoring God on the Sabbath. But you'll see embedded in these verses are a few negative statements. Uh, it's warning them about they, what they shouldn't do. So if you turn, your, turn back your foot on the Sabbath, that was another phrase that I thought, what on earth does that mean? A turning back your foot on the Sabbath. Well, you know, we, we, we can translate that as th think of the Sabbath as holy ground and us stepping on the, or desecrating the Sabbath. So watch your step on the Sabbath. Don't desecrate the Sabbath. That's how you can think of that phrase. The Sabbath calls for careful, thoughtful living. It's not a day, as the second half of verse 13 says, to go your own way, seek your own pleasure, or talk idly. Uh, the warning is not to spend the Sabbath in a way that's oriented around your own way or around your own pleasures. When you become a Christian, you live for Christ's sake, not for satisfying your own self-interested desires. Rather than living for our own pleasures, what's God asking from us? Look at verse 13. He says, if you call the Sabbath a delight, if you honor it, verse 14, then you shall take delight in the Lord. We honor and even delight in the Sabbath because of the God who stands behind the Sabbath. Whatever your personal views on the Sabbath, in terms of Sabbath keeping, the point is not ultimately about getting rest for our labors because, though, though that's nice, the, the, the point, if you see the connection between the if-then statement, the if is about honoring God by delighting and keeping the Sabbath, which is you should not delight... Uh, you, you, you will find your ultimate delight not in Sabbath keeping. The if in verse 13 points to the then in verse 14. Verse 13, if you call the Sabbath a delight, if you honor it, verse 14, then you shall take delight in the Lord. There's the point. We delight in the Sabbath because of the God who stands behind the Sabbath. The point of the Sabbath is to take delight in Him. Delight in what God delights in, and then our delight will grow for God himself. And that's what we want, isn't it? None of the religious practices in and of themselves matter. Where they matter is they all point to Christ, the one whom we've come to delight in today. We're here because our greatest delight is in Jesus. He's the one we want to trust in and give our life to. And so all of these practices, whether it's fasting or whether it's Sabbath keeping, all of them show that our greatest delight is in him because he stands behind any form of our religion. Our faith is demonstrated then in our obedience. What we do when God asks us to do something is because we trust in Christ. And when we obey what God asks of us, even if we don't fully understand, 
it's because we trust that the Lord knows better and he knows best what is what there is for us. And then, you know, what happens when we obey? It grows our delight for Christ. When you take the time to choose what God asks you to do, it grows your delight for him. Now, some of you are thinking, I'm struggling to honor God with my life. I'm I, I just not there in terms of my daily desire for God himself. And so here's the good news for you. If you want to grow in your delight and you want to take heart in what God asks of you by obeying, by simply choosing to obey tomorrow, God can grow your delight in him. Do what God asks you to do and you'll be surprised. He'll grow your delight for him. It's good for us to obey because we know it's what God wants us of us. Now, in verses 13 and 14, the obedience is referring to Sabbath keeping. But there's so many other commandments we can think of in the Bible. For example, you know, the commandment to attend church, which you're obeying right now by being here on Sunday morning. Or the commandment to love others as we love ourselves. Now, if you're a parent, I want you to picture a, a, a typical scenario you have with your children, your younger children, or maybe your teenager. Let's just say the two of you have gotten into a fight. And you're in one of those situations where you're not liking the situation. You're actually probably angry at that moment at your teenager. And guess what? Your teenager is also angry at you. And you're in one of those situations where you think, I don't like this teen right now. And you know what? That teen doesn't like you in that moment. Now, you're, you, you, you've been in that moment, haven't you? you? You've been there just like I have. Well, what do you do in that moment? How do you know that Christianity is really going to work in that moment? More importantly, how does that teenager know that Christianity works? Well, when you choose the command to love, even in, the, in, in a hard moment, you demonstrate to that teenager that God can work in that moment, that the gospel has changed your heart, and you're not going to choose sin and stay angry. What you're going to do is you're going to choose to love even when it's hard. And you know what's on display in that moment? It's not a moment when you get to pat your back and say, hey, guess what? I obeyed. Look, I obeyed the command to love. No, actually, what's on display in that moment? God is. Because this is all about grace. What does God say in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? My grace is sufficient for you, for your powers made perfect in weakness. And what does he say a little later on? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul tells us our, when we're most weak, God demonstrates his grace through us. So in that moment with that teenager, when you choose to love, it's not about you. So stop patting yourself on the back. It's about God being on display in that moment. That's how your teenager would know that Christianity is real. When you choose to love through the strength that God provides, because it's all about his grace in that moment. If you trust Christ, he can give you the strength to obey. If you trust in him, he'll give you the strength to love. Even when you feel like, I don't know how to do it right now. Well, if you're in that moment, ask God for help and say, I don't have the strength on my own. I need a supernatural love in this moment to be able to obey what you asked me to obey. And now, maybe you're not a parent here, but maybe it be there's a coworker 
but you have to have a hard time admitting that you don't like right now. Or maybe there's a, 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 some other situation in your life, like a family member, like you're a, a parent of an adult child who you're having a hard time with. Or there's a cousin or a relative, or maybe you're the adult child having a hard time with a parent. Whatever your situation is, how's the gospel going to be demonstrated? When God's grace worked through you to show, show you that you can obey, that is possible because God's grace is sufficient for those moments. Hold on to Christ, brothers and sisters. He, he can help you in those hard moments, and he'll give you the strength to obey even in the toughest of situations. Well, we should conclude. Consider the hypocrites, what I'm calling the Christian con artists, or a genuine believer who loves Jesus and wants to do everything he can to please God with his or her life. Which one are you? Will you turn to Jesus and trust in him and trust that he can redeem your hypocritical heart? Let's pray together. Lord, we know that hypocrisy can affect any one of us here today. None of us are beyond the grasp of sin. And so we do pray, Lord, that you would help us to repent of our sins and trust in your Savior, because he's more than sufficient for these things. We pray it in your son's name. Amen.